You are listening to the Chasing PRs podcast. And today we have the pleasure to interview Canadian Olympian runner Malindi Elmore as she prepares to run the Ottawa Marathon next Sunday. Don't miss out on this opportunity to get invaluable insights from a phenomenal marathon runner. Stay tuned. Hi, we are your hosts, Rochelle Weeks and Diego Alcubierre. And with over 20 years of combined experience in coaching and physiotherapy, we created this podcast to help everyday runners who want to make the most out of their training and achieve new personal records while managing work, family, and life outside running. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of Chasing PRs. I am Diego. I'm Rochelle. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing Malindi Elmore. You're going to hear, hear the interview in just a few seconds, but we just want to take the time to introduce her and to give you some golden nuggets. Maybe We're not going to spoil everything, but some things you can, you're going to learn in this episode. Yeah, Melindy, for those of you who don't know Melindy Elmore, who she is, she's an, a Canadian marathoner an elite professional runner. She came ninth in the Tokyo Olympics. So that's the best a Canadian runner has ever done at the Olympics in the marathon distance. And she was almost 40 at that time, I think. Yes. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, She also had the Canadian marathon record just up until this past fall. And she's running in the Ottawa Race Weekend Marathon this coming weekend. So we are excited to talk to her for a number of reasons, but she kind of comes into our discussions lately on getting speed before turning your attention to the marathon. So Melindy started as a track athlete. She was a 1,500-meter specialist, went to the Athens Olympics in 2004. She has one of the fastest uh, times in Canadian history, 402. So she got very fast before she became a marathoner. I I didn't. Do you say that she qualified for the Athens Olympics in 1,500? Yes. So she was really... It's an Camp Levin... Elliot Kipchoge, uh, the, the, the woman that won the Sipan Boston Hassan. Marathon, Sipan Hassan. All of them are really fast before turning into the marathon. And I think it just translates for us. We've been talking about it. It's way easier to build mileage than to build speed. <laughs> so, and she, she, built, she built speed like 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it's paying off now because yeah. she's a phenomenal marathon runner. So... In this discussion, we we hear from Melindy whether or not she strength trains, what kind of long run workout she does, how she approaches running in the heat. There's lots of really, really good uh, nuggets of wisdom, whether you're going to do a six-hour marathon in your next race or you're training for an 18-minute 5K, there'll be learnings here for sure. Yeah, and she's running the Ottawa Marathon weekend this Sunday. <laughs> so yeah, I hope we hope you, you enjoy this episode and let's go into the interview. Welcome, Alindi. Thank you for your time. Hi, good morning. Good morning, thank you. Um, we usually start the episode talking about our last week of training. I guess our listeners are sick of listening to our, our last week of <laughs> training. And listening to yours will be very interesting one week before uh, the Ottawa Marathon. Uh, so can you tell us a little about how was your last week of training? Well, I'm kind of into to taper mode now. So my yeah. last week of training has been um, pretty nice and, and a little more chill than it had been for the few weeks leading up. So I start to to really drop off my mileage uh, in the, you know, 12, 16 days prior to a race. 
Um, the idea is to still keep some race pace work and some workouts in the plan. Um, and I still do a, a decent number of double days. When I'm training hard, I usually do probably five double days a week. So I try to keep this same frequency approximately, but cut down the volume, the length of runs, and certainly the length of the long runs so that you know I can start to recover and get ready to race. How many days a week do you train? Seven? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yes, for sure. (laughs) I might take a day or two off in a build in 12 12 weeks or so. This year, I took, I think, just two off. And one of them was because I had neurovirus. So I had really no option but to take the day off. And then one day I was really sore still because I raced a half marathon and then in Japan and then traveled back. And my, um, I think it was my glute meads um, were really, really tight. So I took a day to help those recover. But generally, so I, I take them as needed. Those were, you know, body days where it made sense to take the days off. But if I'm feeling good and I'm healthy, then I generally run every day. Oh, that's really interesting. So you don't have like days of planning your training. You just take them when you need them. Yes, usually I'll take, um, I'll take several days off after a race or, um, through the year when it makes sense from like a training perspective or a periodization perspective in, a, in an annual training plan. But when I'm in a full-on marathon build, I generally feel better if I run every day. However, we will take some days very easy and those are sort of considered off days. So I'll run really, really nice and light. I won't even, um, we call them GPS free days. So I don't even like turn my Garmin on. I just go by time and by feel and I might run in the trails. Um, it's kind of restorative running and it just seems to help my body more than a day off that's completely rest. Um, but this has evolved over the years and we just find now like a little bit of active recovery is probably better for me than than just a passive day of, of no activity. That's really interesting. You had a question about the Japan Health Marathon, right? Yeah, I, so your time, I think that was a personal best for you. You ran an hour and 10 minutes, I believe, right? Yes, it was a personal best. And that's, yeah, I ran one ten ten. Do you normally do a tune-up race when you're doing a big build like this? Like, is that a typical routine for you to have a shorter race than your build? Um, we, yes, it is, but there's no script that we have to follow. So every race or every build depends kind of on circumstances. So I did do the half and the sun run the week prior in this build. But part of it is that I actually had already done a build for Seville Marathon in mid-Feb that I had been planning to run. And Ottawa at that point wasn't on the table. I was planning to run the Seville Marathon and I was planning for that to be a good race. However, it didn't go very well and I didn't end up finishing. So we sort of piggyback that build it right into this Ottawa build. So in order to break up, um, you know, a back-to-back build, we threw in a couple of races just kind of to, to shake things up and, and um, not just be in, you know, a five, six months continual marathon build. Okay. And it's very interesting. I didn't know about this previous marathon. How, how did you approach it mentally that you weren't able to finish and all the hard training you've been doing uh, to just like switch switch gears and okay, let's, let's try a, a new goal. Well, I was really feeling quite fit and excited going into Seville that I was going to have a good race. And for a number of reasons, it just didn't, the plan didn't pan out on the day. So when I, um, 
you know, as part of the, the debrief for that, the, my thought was I want to get in another marathon as soon as possible, um, just because I don't want this fitness and this training to kind of be thrown out the window, so to speak, although it never is. It, it, it helps set up another season or another race distance. But um, so I started looking for another race and there, there weren't a ton of options in North America in the spring. Um, and I didn't want to have to go back over to Europe. So, you know, after thinking about it for a little while and thinking about the timing and reaching out to Ottawa Marathon to Dylan Wikes, um, it just made sense to do Ottawa at the end of May, especially because I love racing in Canada and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of great things about that. So, um, yeah, it just like. I just kind of tried to carry the momentum through and, and stay excited and keep the training going. And then, like I said, throw in a couple of races for fun. For fun. That's, that's <laughs> a, for fun and a one ten half marathon and a PR. <laughs> when, uh, what number marathon will this be Ottawa race weekend for you? How many have you done? I think this will be number seven. Okay. And you're feeling like, how are you feeling going in? Do you feel like you can run a personal best time in Ottawa? Is that is that the plan to try, or do you feel like this build was kind of messed up with a few different issues you've described? Um, no, I feel like I'm I'm certainly in the same shape range as I've been whenever I've run my my best race. Um, but there's so many factors that contribute to a PR PB on the day, and so I think we've started to shift away from this, you know, this idea of a time or absolute performance outcome to how I'm going to run the race and how it's going to be a smart race and how we're going to define a good race that may or may not be a PR. Um, the weather forecast, for example, is looking like it's trending a little bit warm. It's been fairly variable over the last few days. We've been checking often, but, um, Ottawa can be a little on the warm side and a little on the humid side. So, that will impact performance um, by a few seconds a kilometer after it reaches about 20 degrees Celsius. Um, so, you know, on a perfect flat course with perfect conditions, I think I'm in PR shape. Okay. On a course that's a little bit warm and a little bit hilly like Ottawa is, um, not the flattest, fastest course in the world, um, it may not be a PR, but it could still be a really awesome race. And so, shifting the mindset towards, and I know all us runners were very focused on our time and our PR, but you can still have an awesome race without it being a PR. And I think we need to, to figure out how to define what a great race is without the number always being the best number you've always run. So for me, it's going to be, you know, running competitively, um, being patient, having a strong second half, and then hopefully finishing very high on the podium or whatever, whatever that may be, uh, against the rest of the field. So, um, I'm excited for a race that, yeah, that, that I walk away from knowing that I, I ran a really strong race and got the most out of myself. Yeah. I, I listened to a previous interview you did, and you mentioned that you, you changed a little your philosophy of going from PRs or, or, or only time-wise goals to, to becoming the best runner you can be. And do you think that that mindset shift helped you to become a better runner in general? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
There's a lot of research that talks about shifting from um, results-based outcomes and goals to process-based outcomes and goals. And the reality is um, it's you, you just can't compare one marathon to another absolutely like for the reasons I just described. They, it's 20, 26 miles, 42 kilometers of terrain um, and and weather and conditions that you just can't replicate from one event to another. So for example, my best race that I ever had was so far was in Tokyo. You know, finishing top 10 at the Olympics was a phenomenal race for me. And what it took to run in the top 10 on that day took two 20 low shape fitness. But yep. I ran to two thirty because it was, you know, the hu- with the humidex, the heat and the and the humidity combined was uh, forty two yeah. degrees Celsius equivalent. Um, I don't remember the exact exact temperature, but that was the equivalence with the humidity. Um, and I ran a very competitive race that I'm very proud of. But it, I I only in quotation marks only ran uh, two hours thirty ish. I can't even remember. So it was, you know, five six minutes off my PR, but it was. It was something that I'm very proud of um, and and absolutely was really happy to run. So we, it's racing at the end of the day. And I think having PRs to chase and times to chase is really great because it gives us another outcome um, that we can we can be happy about because, you know, especially if you're running against thousands or tens of thousands of people, um, Placing may become irrelevant, so you are going after your personal best, and that's certainly a way to to, to keep track of your personal best. But um, there are other metrics to use to evaluate races, and and I try to focus on that as well. And some of those metrics may not even be something that it's so quantitative. Anyways, it's it's a feeling. It's finishing a race and knowing I ran smart and I got the most out of myself, and I'm happy about that. That's a great outlook. I love it. Yeah, for sure. And I remember Tokyo, a lot of runners uh, drop out because of the humidity. So yes. that top 10 was, was surely impressive. I loved watching that race. <laughs> you, because um, Melinda, you're a coach, a running coach as well, right? Yes, I am. Do you know, for anyone listening who's running Ottawa Race Weekend, the full or the half this weekend, especially with it looking so hot, what tips would you give runners for if it's going to be high 20s, like they're predicting it potentially is with regards to fueling and pacing and hydration, what are a couple tips you would get? Well, hopefully it won't be high 20s when we're actually racing. Um, I just checked and it looks like at the moment it'll be around between 15 and 19 degrees from the start to the finish of the race, which is manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest things with racing in the heat is is respecting the heat. and um, people, I, do, I think people get set on their paces and their desired time outcome and sometimes forget to be flexible with it, making adjustments. And, and that's where we run into trouble is when we think, well, this is the shape I'm in because I've done the workouts at this pace in a climate that perhaps isn't as, as warm. And they set out on that pace and that's where you blow up. So there's, there's a pretty cool little, um, running calculator that people may be aware of the Jack Daniels V dot calculator. And it's, um, it's a great tool and it's a great way of figuring out what pace you run based on your desired outcome time. Say you put in like, 
I don't, I don't even want to throw a number out there because I'll botch them, but you put in your time <laughs> and then it tells you what, what pace you are per kilometer. But then if you go to advanced settings in the bottom left, it'll take you to a page where you can actually put in the temperature. And so if you put in your time that you want to run on, on ideal conditions, and then you put in like 20 degrees or 25 degrees or 30 degrees Celsius, it'll tell you how many kilometers slower you need to run for the equivalent performance. So when you're going over, say, 20 degrees Celsius, it's already about three to three seconds per kilometer slower that you need to make an adjustment for, which over the course of a full marathon is is a couple minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's really respecting that and respecting that this is the science and the research, and this is real. This isn't cop- a cop out that you're thinking, oh, I'm going to try and run slower. No, that's being smart. So respecting the pace is, is absolutely critical. And for example, at Tokyo, we had done the calculations. We knew what kind of fitness I was in and we knew how hot it was going to be. And so I was running 10 seconds per kilometer slower than what my pace would be on, on an ideal condition day. And I really, really, really stuck to that. And if I, if once there were some surges in the pace and I had to make a decision whether I was going with the pack when it started to break up at 18 kilometers, And I knew that if I started running too fast, too soon, it would be ugly. Um, And so it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of patience to stick to that, but it pays off in the long run. Yeah, for sure. It's really cool that you mentioned the B.Dot calculator because we talk about it in this podcast a lot about the B.Dot calculator. Yeah, and we use it a lot and recommend it. And yeah, just being patient with with your pace during Tokyo was one of the reasons I believe that you didn't drop up like many runners that didn't respect the heat of that day. You must have been passing a lot of people in the last 10 kilometers or so in Tokyo. Were you people who did go out too fast and didn't respect the heat? Well, you know what? I basically ran by myself from about 18 kilometers to the finish. I kind of let the pack go that I had been running with. And then um, with about 6K to go, I really started to hit the wall and really started to struggle as well and started to feel fairly unwell. Um, and it was funny because I didn't pick it up at all. I just kept one step in front of the other, kind of like just stay in the moment, just keep moving. You have to keep moving or else, um, you know, or else it's over. And between people um, dropping out and then a few, I passed, I don't even know if I passed, I passed one person maybe with about 2K to go. But it was so funny because I felt like I was dying and I felt like I was hardly mm. moving. And yet, yet more people, other people were feeling worse. So I didn't even do anything. I didn't feel like to pass anyone. It wasn't like, oh, pick it up and go past those people. Like, no, just one step in front of the other. And, and yeah, and it's like, I feel like I'm hardly moving and I'm passing people. It's such a weird feeling. But it was, it was just, you know, again, if you don't respect the conditions and, and to a large extent, the marathon is a race of attrition to begin with. So yep. just moving through those last 7K, it, you, things can happen, uh, good or bad, to a lot of people. And if, if you stay on the side of moving forward um, and, and trying to just keep moving towards the finish line as, as best you can, then, then often you can pick up a lot of places. That's that really cool. And could you explain like really fast it's, if it's if it's very different to run a marathon inside the Olympics, the, like the atmosphere, or how does it feel to run a marathon in the Olympics compared to Houston or, I don't know, any other race that you've done? 
Well, I've only run one Olympics in the marathon and it was during COVID. Oh, okay. Spectators on course. And it was, it was a pretty, uh, pretty quiet marathon actually. So my first marathon after Tokyo was Boston marathon in um, 2022. And so that was crazy. Cause I was, I was like, oh my goodness, there's people like there's other people in the race. There's people on the, you know, on the course, there's people at the finish line. So in terms of an Olympic marathon experience, it was relatively anticlimactic when we actually got to Paris. And are you hoping to go to Paris 2024 and then you'll be able to relive the Olympics and see it properly done? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's a big reason why I'm running Ottawa is to try to either get the time standard, which is 226.50, or to run well enough. Um, again, if, you know, if the conditions are are not favorable to run well enough that I I earn enough world ranking points to keep my world ranking high enough to be eligible for selection. Because there's two ways we can qualify. It's either through the time or through world rankings. Okay. That's really interesting. Melindy, can we, can we switch things up a little bit? One of the things that we wanted to talk to you about. So Diego is 41? Yeah. 41? Oh. Am I right? Okay. He's almost 41. I'm 37. So we would consider us both uh, masters runners. and. I would say most of the people who listen to this podcast are yeah. definitely masters runners. We knew, we wanted to ask you if you've changed anything, like as you've gotten older and you've had a couple children, have you had to change how you approach training and recovery? Um, are you doing anything differently now than you were doing in your track days, say in your twenties, because you're older? Well, I think that. The thing that I'm doing the most consistently that I didn't used to do was strength training. And I think I should have been doing it when I was younger because I was pretty injury prone and the intensity on the track, it's really hard on the body. However, I didn't prioritize it. And when I started running marathons a few years ago, I quickly ran into some problems with my hamstring, hamstring like tendinopathy in my hamstring. And learned very quickly that the only way I was going to be able to continue training is is through a very consistent and disciplined uh, strength training routine. Um, especially, well, and I've also had some post-tib issues. So I think like tendon issues for older athletes in your physio seat. You're probably well aware and seen this in your clinic that um, it's more prevalent to get these kind of tendon injuries as you've been running longer. Um, wear and tear on the body and that sort of thing. So strengthening uh, and making sure I'm just, you know, as, as robust as possible has been a good priority. I'm so happy with that answer because I was going to ask you if you strength train, but as a running physio, I think I spend probably 75% of my time trying to convince my patients to strength train. And sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. But from the research, it's really clear that as we age, um, sarcopenia happens, which is the loss of muscle mass. So as we get older, one of the best ways to fight it is to strength train. And I was listening to um, Des Linden and Carrie Goucher. They have a podcast. And I learned Des Linden doesn't strength train at all. And I was so shocked to hear that. And now she's planning to add it in because she's realizing, I guess, she's in her late 30s, I believe. Um, but I was eager to see if you did. Can you tell us if you're doing more typically like heavier lifting and kind of lower reps or you're doing really high reps, more accessory activation exercises? 
Yes, absolutely. So um, I connected a few years ago when I was injured with Chris Collins here in Kelowna from Okanagan Peak Performance, and he owns a gym and is a strength coach. So he's been super helpful and he really follows current research and is up to date on, on um, you know, the, the peer-reviewed research and the exercises like he modifies and individualizes my program for me really nicely. Um, so, you know, as you, I'm sure, know as well, um, the idea of heavier, heavier lifting, low reps, um, that sort of thing is most effective, uh, especially with like hamstring, tendon kind of injuries. So um, we started, of course, with like the isometric holds and 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 built up gradually, but in order to especially to take the load off my my tendon, um, increasing the the muscle in the strength muscle the strength of my muscle in my hamstrings has been important. So I do deadlifts, but you know try to try to make it as heavy as I can while maintaining good form. So five reps or so for four or five sets of five reps, and um, and we did it for a quite a long time we're not doing it currently in my program but nordic hamstrings and now we're doing kind of a more of an a long isometric hold on my hamstring um so kind of kind of a, a bit of a variety but certainly getting in those heavy low rep um lifts within the program is is really important yeah i love that because a lot of runners come in and they are strength training but then when i ask them what they're doing they're doing like 50 walking lunges and, you know, yeah. 100 body weight squats, like really high reps and, and relatively low weights. So they're working more muscular endurance as opposed to strength. And I think you can get away with that when you're in your 20s and early 30s. But once you get older, you need to be doing the heavier lifts and the lower reps. So I think it just kind of uh, backs up what we've been saying on the podcast that we've got someone who had the Canadian record very recently for the marathon on the podcast. And you're talking about doing heavy deadlifts for five reps. I just love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we get enough endurance through our running. We don't need to build endurance through our lifting. Exactly. Uh, before you switch to marathons, you did some triathlons, right? I did, indeed. Yeah. My, my thing, my question is, when you switch to, to marathons, how did you decide what, what was going to be like your goal or your training basis before you've ever run a marathon? Well, you just determine that through some key session workouts. And for me, it's the last two workouts before a race that we can kind of dial in what my pace is going to be. But it's also a feeling. And you have to be able to really intuitively understand how hard you can push your body for 42.2 kilometers in a race. So... Really important um, the point 0.2. <laughs> point 0.2 is critical because <laughs> some days you, you're ready to be done at 42. Every, every time you're ready to be done at 42. <laughs> um, that bonus 200, that's just for show. <laughs> In Seville, uh, for example, I was pretty excited to try and run fast. And so I went out a little bit faster than I should have in hindsight. But, you know, I was like, oh, I just, I got to take a risk here and I got to give it a go and see what I can do. And I didn't run the way I normally do, which is really a feeling-based pace. And um, again, like I mentioned before, patience and being controlled. 
I thought, well, I, you know, I'm going to throw a little caution into the wind and go for it. And boy, it didn't go well. Um, and it quickly, quickly caught up with me way sooner than, than it usually does. So, um, so it is a combination of, of being confident that you're in a certain fitness, but then also really, really, really being in tune with how it feels on the race day and being able to make adjustments because, um, you just don't know what you're going to run into out there on the course. And you have to be able to have the confidence that, that this is something you can do well for 42k, not 10k, not 15k, not 35k. You have to have to be able to do this for the whole distance. Not 42. <laughs> Point two. <laughs> Point two. <laughs> I'll tell you that that last 200 meters of the Olympics was the longest 200 meters of my life, and I remember hitting 42k, and the the finish gantry looked so far away still. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I just want to stop and walk. And and I thought, well, if you stop and walk now, it could take you five minutes to finish 200 meters. <laughs> like you just you just have to keep running. Um, and it was just like it was just death march by then. And so it's just you know literally one step in front of the other, like just just keep moving forward. And and as I'm moving forward, I'm thinking, I think it's getting further away. Further. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you do any kind of mindset of mental workout? Yeah, I mean, I I read a fair amount, and I've kind of worked on on tools over the years. And and for example, use that race tool as an example because it was grueling. I you know really went to some mantras that I've worked on. I went to some keywords. Um, one of the biggest things I've learned to do over the years is honestly just try and turn my brain off and and tune down the chatter um if you can't think of something good then don't think of anything at all yeah. and i'll acknowledge sometimes like oh i'm having a rough patch or i'm not feeling good or whatever but then i just try and like acknowledge it to myself but it's not a it's not a decision about anything or it's not an excuse it's like okay i'm having a hard time because there's always going to be in a, in a marathon or almost always in a marathon, some moments that you're like, this is really hard. This is, yep. I'm not feeling great. I'd like this to be done. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean you make a decision to make it done um, or that you throw in the towel or that you're having a bad day. It just means you're maybe having a bad moment, um, which often is an indication that you need to get some fueling or some, some, um, some hydration or, or something like that. Like you need to, to make a decision to, to proactively help your body come around again because your brain your brain often knows before your body knows that, that you're having well they work together honestly but anyway so in terms of mental cues yeah I, I definitely work on stuff but like I said sometimes I just try and tune out and just focus on my breathing focus on staying relaxed focus on good rhythm and try to keep things as quiet and um, non-emotional as possible in my brain and do you consciously train that during your runs, your long runs, your hard workouts? Oh, totally. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I'm always training my body and my mind pretty much every session and they work together. Perfect. Uh, 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 we are recording this at 6.30 time in Malindi, so we're going to ask you a couple of more questions to not <laughs> take more time of your time and uh, to get you ready for, for the race weekend. Do you have any other 
I, I was just going to ask you, there's a little bit of a debate I find when I talk to different coaches in Ottawa about doing a workout in the long run. And I know as an elite athlete, you probably do quite a bit of like race specific stuff in your long run. When you're working with your athletes who you coach and they're not necessarily elite, will you program what we call workouts in the long run? Or are you encouraging the long runs to just be really relaxed and easy to get time on feet? Yeah, I'm a big believer in putting some race pace in your workouts. Um, it To me, it's counterintuitive, personally, to do everything like a long run, just slow, easy long run, and then suddenly be like, okay, well, now it's race day. Go run those a minute faster per kilometer than you've ever run before for a long run. Yeah. And... I, I do see, you know, a number of programs where maybe you do some workouts, but they're separate from your long run. Yep. But the whole thing about working out and specificity of training is training your body for what you're going to do on race day. And so if you have a goal of, say, running, let's say, three hours, which is a great goal for a lot of people is break that three-hour mark. Um, and let's say that's about 4.15 per kilometer. If you're always running everything at five minute kilometers for your 35K runs, and now all of a sudden you're turning around and you're expecting to run 45 seconds faster per kilometer for 42.2 kilometers again, <laughs> um, that's a big ask. And, and so you have to train your body and your mind progressively through your training program to be able to do that. And, and you, don't have to, you don't have to, in fact, you never would do the full distance at that pace in training. That's what race day is for, but um, we would look at scaling up from like a, you know, a long run that's just all easy paced and increasing the percentage or the time at marathon goal pace over the course of the training program before starting the taper up to between 20 and 30 kilometers of your long. long run at race pace would be kind of how we would approach it. And um, I found that that sets people up generally for success that's perfect and can i ask you what was your longest run and highest highest weekly mileage for this bill um so i did one run that was a total of 39k wow with 30 kilometers of it at what we call like progression runs so i didn't do the full 30k at my race pace but we you know, to be honest, a lot of it was at race pace effort, which is different than race pace. Okay, so yeah. we, we, we do a lot of race pace effort stuff because, um, because it's hard to do your train. So I guess the idea is that you're training towards something and you're not in that fitness yet that, that happens in that last few magic weeks. So it might feel like it's race pace, but you're still five or 10 seconds slower than what actually will be a race pace on the day. So I did 30 K at race pace effort. Um, and that was really hard. Like I was in, inside of a 39 K run. So five K five, six K warm up, then a 30 K and then five K cool down or whatever. And I was, I was sore and tired for several days afterwards. Um, but I did that way out from, from the race. I did it a few weeks ago already. So, um, that was my longest single run. And I usually do one forty K run in my build. Um, and it always is a little bit different. So in this case, it was 30K solid progression run. Um, and then my biggest mileage, I often 
will run around 100 miles to 160 to 170 K weeks for my meaty weeks in my marathon build. And I was right in that range this year. I think I hit like 175 or 180 K somewhere. But, but, but it's funny because I know we always look at Strava, right? Or a lot of athletes go mm-hmm. at some, at some Monday to Sunday kind of calculation. So often my biggest weeks might be a Thursday to Wednesday or something like that. So it doesn't yeah. look so pretty. You don't like, you know, like hit the week and go, oh, look at that great. You don't one for the way on Strava or you're in a seven day span. Yeah, exactly. And so my husband who coaches me, he he keeps really careful track and I'd be like, you know, if I say one day, oh, I'm really, really feeling tired today. It's like, yeah, you've just run 110 miles in the last seven days. Um, but with like a couple easy days, you know, you, you, like it doesn't just all, it's not, I don't always see that I've run that much because I don't always look at the seven day span, but he also often looks at my uh, four week running average as, as a metric that he follows for my mileage. So be you know, again, like in the last four weeks, you've averaged this much, which okay. is maybe a better way of looking at it too, because uh, it's not just how much you did in one week. It's like being consistent over over several days and weeks that that really start to add up. Okay. Well, uh, we really appreciate your time waking up early on a Monday morning before your your marathon. Uh, we'll be cheering for sure. One of you'll be running the half marathon. I'm doing the half. Yeah. So I'll... I'll be cheering along the way you'll be finishing while i'm running for sure (laughs) and uh congratulations on your achievements thank you for your time on the podcast um i don't know anything else you want to to say (laughs) no just good luck to everyone out there racing um love to see everyone doing their best and uh really excited to run this this race in canada with all all my fellow canadian runners yeah, it, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm sure I'm becoming the best runner you can be. I think it's one of the legal lessons of lis- by listening and talking to mm-hmm. you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Bye. Cheers. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you love it, give it a share. Please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. And visit chasingprs.run for all the latest episodes get our free newsletter and all the cool running stuff we have there. Thanks for joining.